Jesus, the birth, his life and resurrection. And this is where Roger's going to pick up the story and talk about the early church. Um, so thank you for coming, Roger. Please, can I pray with you? You certainly can. invite you into this time this morning, God. We thank you for the <coughs> preparation that Roger has put into sharing with us this morning, God. And I just pray that you give us open hearts, open ears, open minds, God, to receive what you want us to this morning, God. I just invite you here by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, and just give Roger clarity of mind mm. as he speaks and he shares, God. And just if he keeps out, I pray you fill him up, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay, I think uh, might need to cool down a bit. <laughs> Depends how overheated I get. everybody hi there welcome 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 lovely to see you all good fun is it is it picking it up if I speak like this or do I need to hold it I need to hold it okay I'll hold it Right, morning everybody. Well, what fun it is to be together and uh, we're going to, I'm, I'm picking up vaguely uh, in accordance with my brief. I hope I, 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 I won't get too told off. But we're going to go from the Gospels uh, through Acts this morning. Uh, just ignore the arrows for now. And um, I'm going to take a little of a bit of a historical look in terms of the background, uh, how the Gospels came together uh, what happened in the life of the early church, how the discipleship life of the early church developed, um, why Luke chose to record certain stories and not others, what about the things that we don't know that were going on uh, in the early church, all that kind of stuff. Um, and hopefully it will help you to get a little bit more background as to how the Gospels emerged, how Luke-Acts emerged, and where, where those books sit alongside Paul's early writings and, yeah, we might go into Pauline authorship as well. That'd be interesting. So, basically, um, you can ask a question at any time. Um, so, just, you know, interrupt, shove your hand up, uh, do whatever, and then I'll go back over what I'm saying. So, because it might, I don't know how much, some of this might be quite new um, to some of you, although there's nothing new under the sun. It's, it's not new in terms of uh, biblical scholarship. That's not often the sort of thing you hear taught in the context of the church. So basically, when we look at the ministry of Jesus uh, uh, and the Gospels, you, you have, you've got around three years of, of ministry, you know, where Jesus you know, was out and about, he was teaching, he was healing, he was ministering. Then you, you, you have the, the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the, you know, the ascension of Jesus, uh, all of that historically working its out through. Now, but what we've got to understand is that the first written gospel, which was pretty definitely the gospel of Mark, was probably not written down 
till at the earliest AD 42, possibly AD 60. So between 15 and 30 years passed between the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost and the first... Well, the death would be somewhere between 30 and 31. Uh, and then Mark, the earliest authorship of Mark, would probably be around 42, but it could have been up to early 60s. But, but e- either, way you, e- either way you look at it, there's obviously a gap of between 15 and 30 years before this written, the, the written gospel. And... Uh, a good proportion of uh, Paul's, because the earliest writings were Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, m- most likely came before Mark. So, so when the Gospels were written, they were written into a context, uh, although they were recording the earliest events of Jesus' ministry, they were actually, you know, it's a bit like um, Red Moon Rising, isn't it? You know, it's recording the events of the emergence of 24-7, but it's not written down until 15, 20, 30 years later. Um, and, and so when it's written, you know, Mark is writing the gospel, he's recording, and we're gonna, uh, we'll talk in a minute about what he's recording. Um, he's faithfully recording, but he's also writing into a context. He already has read Paul's early writings, and that affects what he records in Mark. Uh, you know, he's talked at length to Mary, the mother of Jesus, for sure. He's probably building his whole narrative on interviews with Peter. P- you know, people say, well, you know, Peter was obviously very influential, but he disappears after Pentecost. Most people would say they think that Mark was depending quite a lot on Peter for his narrative account. So just to understand, this is what's happening in the Gospels. So the, the foundation to the written Gospels is right in the midst of the Jewish oral tradition. So within the context of you know, the Jewish life, the oral tradition was, was, was a phenomenal influence. The Old Testament were, was you know, originally lots and lots of oral recordings. You know, people recording stories, recording stories, recording stories, and pretty much in that mindset, uh, that there was an equal trust of the written historical account and the oral historical account. You know, within that culture, within that context, that there was a trust of that. Uh, but there's a certain dynamic to the oral tradition that the written tradition didn't have. So basically, Mark is, uh, is writing down or recording the oral tradition, the stories about Jesus that had been held by the early church since Pentecost till those Gospels were recorded. And most people that really looked at detail say, well, really what the Gospels are, they are the recording of the curriculum of the early church. Because when you look at the Gospels, you've got you know, all these miracle stories like together, lots of miracle stories in the thing, and then you've got you know, a whole series of parables, bish, bash, bosh, 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 you know, all together. And, and so basically what they're saying is, you know, when Jesus died, ascended, you, you then had Pentecost, 
you then had the disciples dispersed into all the synagogues, whatever, and they took the message with them. And basically, people got saved, loads of new communities were planted, things started to emerge. And how did they teach? They taught by telling the stories of Jesus and recording and recounting the teaching of Jesus. And then what happened is that kind of began to be organized into a kind of a curriculum. So as the apostles went around, they they told and retold the same stories in the same format, and they also retold the teaching in the similar format. And it's that format that becomes the foundation for the Gospel of Mark. And, And so but what they would say is, well, so this oral tradition, they call it the Jesus tradition, uh, James Dunn and other historians, basically became the foundation for Mark, which was first. And what you really see is that really Luke and, Mark, uh, and Matthew uh, really based all of their material, most of their stuff on Mark. So you, you, there's a pretty much a reproduction of Mark within Luke and Matthew. Luke has a more of a historical storytelling he's telling something about the life of Jesus Matthew's focusing perhaps more from a Jewish angle he's coming a little bit later he's looking into the early church he's seeing that already um, the gospel is like massively multiplying amongst the Gentile um, population amongst the Greeks and whatever and he's wanting to say hang on this is also for the Jews it's the Jews first which was Paul's approach So he's taking a little bit more of that angle. And so what you see is that pretty much everything that's in Mark is in these two, but there are things in these two that aren't in Mark. And so so what historians would say is there is this other thing out there which they call either little Q or big Q. (laughs) Little Q is there were all sorts of other recorded stories out there that Mark chose not to include, but that Matthew and Luke included in their Gospels. They say that little Q could be a big Q. There might have been another document out there. There might have been another that, that they decided, actually, it's, it's better in there, so we won't, we won't bother with it. We'll let it, we'll let it go. And so, so you've got this oral tradition that's emerging in these two frameworks. And at the same time that this is going on, you, you've got Paul's early letters in existence. And so what you see in the Gospels is this. So some would say, well, yes, because it's an oral tradition. The oral tradition is, you know, really unreliable. And some people would like date the Gospels really late. They try and put them late into the first century or into the second century even. And they say, well, look, you can't trust the Gospels because it's oral tradition. Oral tradition is really unreliable when you look at the oral stuff in the second century, you're looking at the, the apocryphal books. You know, there are extra books that were written around the same time that aren't in the Bible. You're looking at those, and they're very unreliable, so you can't trust the Gospels. So that's where scholarship goes with discrediting it. But actually what you realize, the work of because Guy Balcom says, well, really, the, the, the New Testament books are eyewitness documents. That they're eyewitness documents. So when you're looking at the New Testament, when you're looking at the book of Acts, when you're, you're looking at the Pauline letters, when you're looking at Peter, when you're looking at Hebrews, which is probably the only one we don't really know who wrote. You know, we could have a conversation about Paul and Ephesians. We probably won't get there today, but we could do that if we wanted to. 
Um, but, the, but basically, the, these are eyewitness documents. And what they would say is you can tell that when you look at, like, when you go look at the Gospels, you know, sometimes it's, it's this person that gets healed, it's that person that gets healed, it's the other person that gets healed. And then sometimes it's, you know, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. And, and people would say, well, it's when a name is mentioned, because this you've got the oral tradition. That's, you, you imagine you're going around a church. Wow, we were somewhere, you know. And you know that Chloe, you know, Chloe, son of, daughter of, of Roger and Margaret. You know, she, she had cancer. She'd recovered through prayer. Isn't that wonderful? So you see, what's happening is when it's Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, it's because everybody knew, you know, Bartimaeus probably was still alive, but certainly Timaeus was well known in the church. They were probably there at Pentecost. So, so where names are mentioned, it's because these people, these people that had had the miracles, that had got saved, that had been cleansed, that had been healed, were still in the church. So the Gospels are recording this living dynamic where people are named because they are eyewitness. So Mark would have probably sat in a room with Timaeus and said, you know, well, what happened with Bartimaeus then? Well, Mark may well have been there. Probably was seen it, you know. So, so what you've got is this eyewitness testimony. And so the reason why the Gospels were, were put down is because, one, um, they're thinking, yeah, actually, we're getting on a bit. <laughs> J- Jesus hasn't come back. <laughs> we thought perhaps he might. While we were still, he just hasn't come back. We need to record. We, we need to record these stories. Also, there were lots of other accounts emerging uh, later on, much later on, but that weren't really consistent. And we'll talk about small G and big G gospel. weren't really consistent with the eyewitness testimony. You know, it's like you get weird people, don't you? Turn up, even in Archer, weird people. You know, where Jesus is a spaceman and an astronaut or whatever and uh, so so you were the 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 original eyewitness testimony was beginning to the oral tradition which was kind of eyewitness testimony was beginning to be polluted by stuff that wasn't eyewitness so they thought hang on a minute we've got to write this down Uh, and and this coincided with a massive shift you know akin to the development of the internet in that time, and, and that is that uh, writing was moving from scroll to what's called codex. So scroll was, you know, you unroll the scroll. You can only have one book on a scroll all the way down. But what was beginning to change was towards codex, more book form. So then you could have more than one book in a book. <laughs> you know, well, you couldn't do it with a scroll. And, and so... So they, they, they began to put these things down. And the interesting thing is, when people say, well, you know, is the Apocrypha, we can talk about that later. We've got more questions. We can, you know, why, are, why are the Gospels in the, in the Bible? And why isn't, you know, the book of Thomas in there or the book of whatever his name is, Enoch? Or why, why, is, why are these books in there and the other ones, you know, not in there? And, and they clearly are. And, and it, it, people say, well, yeah, but that's because the church... Later on, you know, they made this decision. They, you know, they, they, it was all to do. It's a construct. These other books, was due to some conspiracy, were pushed out. But the interesting thing is, once Codex came in, um, you started to see different Gospels alongside each other in the Codex. 
that were, you know, but you never see an apocryphal book alongside one of these in a codex. You only see these together. You never see any of the others, which is a good indication. Um, you know, so quite exciting, isn't it? You see that the Bible is a living document that emerged out of the community of the church. When we're looking at biblical inspiration, you know, sometimes the evangelicals, it's this idea, you know, all scripture is God breathed, that, you know, somehow Mark's sitting there in a the room and, and he's automatic writing. You know, uh, 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 you know, of course, it's through his own culture and his own personality. But that's not how the New Testament emerged. The New Testament emerged, yes, out of inspiration. Uh, yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it is inspired by the Holy Spirit through the eyewitnesses who actually saw it. You know, once you've, you've been raised from the dead, you know, <laughs> you know, or your best friend has been raised from the dead, you know, or you've seen Jesus raised from the dead, or you've seen him walk on water. You know, now, there's no doubt about it, the stories do develop. <laughs> yeah, the oral tradition does develop a story, doesn't it? I tell you a story now about Chloe. I tell you the same story a, a, a week later. People say, well, why are the Gospels slightly different? You know, well, essentially, they're exactly the same. Essentially, they record the same teaching and the same event. But it's a bit like if I tell you the story of Chloe today, I might be, you know, recording her greeting to you. I've got a text from her saying, oh, it feels weird that you're here and I'm not because they're family to me. So I might tell you that story through that lens. Next time, I might tell you the story because I'm talking with someone who knows somebody who's struggling with a, a brain tumor. So I'll tell the story differently, but it's still the same story. And, and that's what you get with, with these three, the synoptics. They're, they're called synoptics because they kind of like each other. They take the same approach. But even with John, uh, who takes a, a completely different approach. So when you're looking at the inspiration of Scripture, it, it's, it's kind of awe-inspiring that God chose to see his word emerge through the eyewitness accounts, through the history, through the work of the Spirit, in, in the early church. And it's really interesting that you see that these documents, although, you know, because in the New Testament, when it talks about, um, you know, the scriptures, it's not talking about, well, mostly it's not talking about the New Testament, it's talking about the Old Testament. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2. It means two things. It does mean that really apostles like Paul and prophets like Philip help develop the new testament church it also means that you know every, when they get up when jesus got up in the synagogue they read from the scriptures they read from the prophets and in luke 4 he reads from you know the prophet isaiah so for them scripture was the old testament but actually even in the new testament paul's writings were considered as, as inspired you know so in in uh, peter peter who obviously had his fallouts with paul and so did the Jerusalem church. We'll go into those a little bit later. Uh, but even Peter in his writings saying, look, you know, Paul's writings, absolutely amazing. They're inspired. All scripture is God breathed, whatever. He's referring to the Pauline letters that were probably being read out in the church alongside the Old Testament quite early on. So although historically, if you look at, you know, when did the church say this is the canon of scripture? It probably was a few hundred years later because they had a few things few scraps 
But, but basically, very early on, it was pretty clear, you know, which was canon and which wasn't, and which was in and which wasn't. You know, few people disagreed with, around James. You know, he's, he's very Jewish. And, you know, so get understand. You know, you, 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 a few people had a few problems with that. But, you know, there are one or two Hebrews, we've got a few problems with that, who, you know, etc. But really, in all intents and purposes, ever, they were pretty clear about which ones we could build on and which ones we can't build on. And so you with me up till now? I think it's exciting, isn't it? Because this, this, is a, this is the book that we love, that we're reading day in and day out. And, it, you know, at one level, it is an absolute mystery. You know, it's revelation. It's God's word. It's got this unique power. But another level, it's, it's not this, you know, it, it has emerged through the process of life and culture and God's movement on a generation of people. And, and it shows the power of the story. You know, because that's really what the gospel is. It's, it's retelling the story of Jesus. And as we retell our stories, somewhat from different angles, sometimes creatively, still the essence of the story is, is the same. And we are a community of the stories. So we have this beautiful emergence of the gospels. And we also see, because um, some people say, well, how the heck does John get in then? <laughs> Yeah, because the other three are okay. They're the same, but John is he is off at a weird angle. And actually, some of the apocryphal books um, have got more in common with Matthew, Luke, and Mark on the surface than John. If you go through a lot of the miracle stories, a lot of the teaching of Jesus, a lot of it's in these three, but it's not in John. John takes a completely different angle. So why is John in there and say, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas not? Well, there's Two reasons. <laughs> um, there's a small g and a big g. Now, the small g gospel, if you like, is, you know, 1 Corinthians 15. You know, what was Paul says, what was passed on to me? You know, Christ died on the third day, he was rose again from dead, according to the scriptures. The, the small g is all the work that Paul had done on grace and all of this stuff, all, all of this teaching on you know, saved by salvation by faith, all of this stuff that was, was in the bank by the time Mark wrote, Mark penned you know, the oral tradition. All that was, was in the bank and was pretty much accepted. And when you look at the Gospel of Mark, you, you kind of see that, that kind of all that's included. There's nothing there that contradicts what Paul has laid down. But what Paul's writings do, if you read Paul, you don't get much about you know, Jesus with the woman at the well. You, do, you don't get many stories, do you, of Jesus' life and ministry. What you get is the kind of cosmic Christ, don't you? You get the... You know, the, the, the Christ in whom all things hold together, seated at the right hand of the Father, Lord. You get the glorious risen Christ. Yes, he was a human. You get all of that in Paul. You don't get much of the other stuff. And what the Gospels are doing are filling in that kind of gap. But it's interesting that it has been said that, you know, John and Paul are quite similar. You know, Paul is all this cosmic Christ in whom all things hold together, the risen Christ, the glorious Christ. So John starts with, you know, in the beginning was the word, you know, Jesus, the logos, the, uh, the eternal principle of order that holds together the universe in Greek thought. And you know, so immediately John starts, Greek thought, Jesus, the logos, 
the, the Greeks thought that there was this, this eternal principle of order that held together the universe. So he starts by saying, right, to you Greeks, Jesus is the eternal principle of order that holds together the universe. And to you Jews, he's the word. You know, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God spoke through the word. So Jesus is also the word. So John is quite intergalactic. So it's kind of like John, John and Paul are quite similar. In fact, one commentator said that they were about as risky as you could get in terms of kind of connecting the gospel to the, to the culture around. Whereas this lot here are much more central. But what, what, what you find that they've all got in common, they all have the small g in, in common. You know, if you go through the Gospels, you see that it's built on the cross, the resurrection, that Jesus, Jesus being God, all of these things are all the way there. The small g is there. Whereas if you go into the Gospel of Thomas, some of the other apocryphal books, you know, Jesus is a bit Gnostic. You know, we're not sure about the resurrection, you know, etc. Some of them are late as well. We don't know who wrote them. It could be several people, so, so they're, they're, they're dodgy in that level. But then also, you, you have this um, big G, okay? So the big G is like the Gospels are a genre. You know, like rhythm and blues is a genre, right? I mean, they're musical genres. You could probably help me with a few musical genres. Yeah, there are musical genres. There are literary genres, aren't there? There's, there's poetry, there's your know, historical document. There are genres, you know. And so there are, you know, I guess you know, social media is a genre, isn't it? You know, in terms of you know, Twitter is a genre or whatever. You've got to have a certain number of things figured. You can't go beyond it. I'm useless. I'm not. I don't tweet very much. But you know, what? there are genres, aren't there? So, so it has certain rules. So what they're saying is, big G, the the, the gospels are more than just uh, a recount of the life of Jesus. They are more than just um, a small g kind of reproduction of who, but they are actually a genre. And what I mean by that is that every gospel starts with Jesus. Here is it's a genealogy. So Jesus is the twice perfect, twice perfect, twice perfect, you know, 14 sevens all the way through in Matthew. Jesus is, wow, you know, David fulfilled. He is the one, he's the Messiah. You know, in John, in the beginning was the word. In Luke, the, the, the creation story. So, so every gospel starts with this introduction of Jesus, who is, wow, more than the one, the Messiah. Then every gospel goes into this process of, the teaching of Jesus and the teaching about Jesus. So you've got teaching of Jesus, the teaching that Jesus actually gave, the stories that Jesus actually told. And then you've got the about Jesus. You know, he did this to fulfill that. He did, you, you, so, so there you go, okay. And then right at the end, 30% of the book is what they call a passion narrative. So 30% of the Gospels is about the, the, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. So, so what, what um, people that really looked at it would say, who were far more qualified than me, would say, actually, there is a big G Gospel format. And that Gospel format is like 
the discipleship framework for the early church. So if you want to say, okay, as an early church, what should our teaching content be? Well, should we need a proportion that is, you know, introducing this wonderful Jesus and who he is? We need a little bit that's the teaching of Jesus. We need a little bit that's the teaching about Jesus. And we need a whopping focus on the passion narrative. You know, we, we break bread. You see that New Testament church, you're breaking bread, the remembrance seemed to be central. And so, so if you're designing a discipleship course, it should have all of those frameworks in. If, if you want to live a life of, the Christian community wants to lead a life of worship, it needs to have this big G gospel genre in. So, when you, so, so the apocryphal books were thrown out, as well as all the other reasons, one of the, the, one of the other reasons is they didn't fit the genre. So, so John, even though the teaching is way different in many ways, it's a completely different angle, but it's, it's much later, it's in the 90s. And things are changing. The issues in the church are really different than they were back in the 60s. Uh, you know, it's 30 years. <laughs> things change in 30 years. Don't they? 30 years isn't that long a time, is it really? You know, but it, but it, yeah, exactly. You, you look at the 60s as we see the musically, the 60s and the 90s now. It's different. So you, you're looking really differently at one level. And, and kind of that's, but it's not that long. You know, people say, oh, it couldn't possibly be accurate. Well, it's not that, you know, it's not that long. They were still alive, a lot of them. I mean, a lot of them had died, obviously. But they, so, so, although John is different, he sticks to the gospel genre. And, and so that's why he's in. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, that the Jesus tradition probably had the genre built into it in terms of the way the stories were ordered and told. So I think it's something that, that came out within the tradition that, that, you know, as the apostles went, okay, this is the message that we're taking. It's rather like, you know, in the Boiler Room Network, you know, or the com- Communities Network, we've sat down and we've said, okay, what do we want to teach into our, into our communities? And next time I come, I'll, I'll tell you what that is. Uh, but, but, you know, we've done a lot of work thinking about it and said, well, okay, that, that's what we want to take into our communities. These are the foundations that we want to lay. And I think within the context of the oral tradition, that was what was happening. And, and Mark was penning that down. And it be kind of came the benchmark right at the beginning as the first one, which the others were then, um, you know, built around. And it's quite interesting that you can see that all these arrows, um, because John is so different, some of them say, we're not even sure that, that John's read the other three. <laughs> but, but then they say, well, no, he must have done because he's stuck to the genre. And, and I think what you've really got is John is probably coming straight from his experience of the oral tradition. You know, he's recorded as a disciple that's, you know, close to Jesus. He's he's pinning back into his life experience that that's where he's going. But he clearly is aware of, he's clearly aware of Paul's writings. How could you not be? He's clearly also, uh, you know, even though he's probably 30 years after the death of Paul, probably, um, but he's also very aware of, of the gospel framework. And so you, you, kind of, you kind of see, you know, Luke Acts, which we're going to look at a little bit. We'll start in a minute. This is the introduction. Luke, Luke, no, hold on, what time are we? Yeah, we're doing all right. It's well worth doing this stuff, though, because it's kind of like 
for me, it kind of answered a lot of questions. You know, I know that the gospel is canon, but how is it canon? How, how, how did it emerge? What? And, and, and in the end, its, it's um, testimony is more than just the fact that the Spirit's on it and that we can tell that it's authoritative. Because we can tell that it's authoritative. You know, because you, you, you know, when you read Scripture and you begin to quote Scripture and you begin to pray and you come to faith, you realize that this book's more than just, you know. But behind that, there is a whole lot of rigor in terms of the history of how this thing, thing developed. Um, so when we move to... Um, and I really like that uh, small g, big g thing because um, I think that's quite important. You know, you've got that. Um, there, is, there, is the, there is this clear gospel you know, that Paul talks about because it's interesting. Although Paul's writing, uh, you know, Corinthians, you know, well, I mean, uh, before, before 30 for sure. Um, certainly the first one, 1, 2 Corinthians. Some people say th 1, 2 Thessalonians, but no, no, I think probably Corinthians. But, you know, they're both very early. But, but Paul says, I'm writing down what was passed to me. Well, what's been passed to Paul? The, or the oral tradition, the Jesus tradition. You know, when Paul gets saved, we'll see in a minute, the first thing he does, he goes up to meet Peter or whatever, and, and that's what's passed down to him as one abnormally born. You know, he, he kind of is an eyewitness, but not an eyewitness. So, what fun, eh? So, when we look at the New Testament church emerging, what we've got to understand is that the New Testament church didn't see themselves as the church. Well, they saw themselves as the church, but they didn't see themselves in any way as separate to Judaism. Um, and at the time... You know, we talk about Judaism now, but, but in reality, Judaism as we see it in the world today didn't really exist till about the 4th century, um, you know, as a distinct kind of formed religion. Now, between the 4th century and the time of Jesus, um, a lot of things happened within Judaism. And around the time of the church is, is what most people call Second Temple Judaism. Now, what Second Temple Judaism was, it had lots of sects within it. It wasn't just Phariseeism. You know, in the New Testament, you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, that's two. And there's a shed load of other sects as well, mystical sects. This. So when, when, when the, you know, this, this Jesus sect emerged, this Messianic sect emerged, they, they were just another sect within Judaism. They didn't see themselves as not Jewish, they never for a moment saw themselves as outside of the Jewish religion. They saw Jesus as the Messiah. And so really when the church emerged, it was in this mess of Second Temple Judaism. You know, in Acts we see they, they're still going up to the temple. They're still worshipping in the temple courts. They're still, and, and then you get this, you know, as things begin to grow, you get then the conflict around when you get saved, do you, you know, is salvation, do you still get circumcised or do you get baptized? That was a huge, massive, massive issue, which we'll talk about later. So pre-AD 70, um, 
you know, the church was growing within Judaism, alongside Judaism, and, and that was what it was. I had no sense of... And then in AD 70, a really big event happened, and, and that's where, because the Jews were falling out at each other in Jerusalem, it was an absolute nightmare. The Romans came in, they destroyed the temple, uh, they absolutely massacred um, Jerusalem, and pretty much destroyed all the sects. And then after AD 70, really, the Pharisees took over. And then when that happened, things became clearer. It became less easy for Christianity to be a sect within Second Temple Judaism. So between AD 70 and the end of the second century, you see this kind of split gradually emerging. And particularly when there were loads and loads, you know, due to the success of Paul which is why Luke votes for Paul by writing the book of Acts and recording Paul. You know, people said, it's so frustrating. We do not know anything about what Peter did, apart from probably saving James and Paul from falling out with each other and possibly, you know, being the source for Mark. But, you know, Peter obviously planted a stack load of churches, but we don't know. I mean, Thomas for sure did. You know, there's all this extra biblical literature of Thomas in different countries and all. Philip, you know, he, I mean, they were going, from Pentecost, those guys were going mad. They were out all over the place. We don't know anything other than, you know, historians, you know, centuries later, you know, digging up things in different towns, finding records of that there were obviously churches there that were meeting in, even in schools, you've got to laugh, uh, and, and you, you know, and, and that the, the, there, there was a bishop there suddenly, in, in you know, 200 years later, there's the bishop of whatever, and they're thinking, well, how did we end up with the bishop there? Well, somebody must have planted the church there. Well, who the heck was that? Well, it wasn't Paul, because he was over here. Well, it must have been one of the others. And so, people say it's really frustrating. So it's kind of almost like what isn't in the text is also quite exciting, isn't it? Now, obviously, we don't get to speculate about that, but, you know, what isn't in Red Moon Rising is also quite exciting, isn't it? What is it in the official record, <laughs> you know, has also created the, the, the spread of the church and the dynamic of the movement. So the stories are, they are the story, but they're not always, they're not the full story. And, and so after AD 70, things start to become clearer, And there's plenty of evidence in the second century of Jewish leaders getting really frustrated that Jews are attending the church as well as the synagogue. And there's also records of Christian leaders getting very frustrated that as well as people attending the church, they're also attending the synagogue. (laughs) There was all this, there was this big overlap. And so in the second century, you know, like today, you've got Jews for Jesus, you've got Messianic synagogues and and all of that. There was quite a lot of dynamic around that. Uh, But then what happened with the conversion of Constantine in 3-2, whatever it was, 3-whatever, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and the persecution that was on the church was removed, but the persecution that was on the Jewish faith wasn't removed, and that was the last straw that kind of brought the separation and a lot of theologians would say it's really sad that from then onwards there's been a massive separation over the centuries and you've even had anti-semitism and all sorts of stuff but I think in the last season of time a lot of that's been restored with messianic Judaism Jews for Jesus you know the, the work of you know people like Dunn, N.T. Wright, many other theologians that are basically saying look you cannot separate 
you can't separate, you can't look at Jesus as white, you can't look, you, Jesus was Jewish, you can't, you know, you, you cannot separate Jesus from his Jewish heritage. You can't separate the New Testament from the Old Testament because you can't understand Jesus outside of the Jewish background, the Jewish heritage. I mean, I'm sure Joe did all this sort of stuff when he came with you. So, so that's kind of the, the, the second... So, so that's how we understand kind of what's, what's going on. And so if you imagine in the mind of Paul, who was definitely dead by AD 66, probably AD 62... He probably didn't have in his mind, even though he's saying that this is salvation, this is the church, in his heart was not separation from the Jewish faith. But in the end, Jesus was the Lord and he had to go with what he saw in terms of the gospel. So that's the kind of tension and that's where we leave Paul. So should we do some timings roughly so we get ourselves? So you've got AD 3031. Jesus crucified, risen, and appearances. You've got AD 31, 32, Paul saved. So within, quite early, within 9 to 18 months, people would say 18 months, two or three people would say 18 months. And, and then he goes into Arabia. <laughs> well, what the heck does he do there for 10 years? I mean, <laughs> 10 years! I mean, imagine someone like Paul. I mean, we're in 10 minutes with Paul. Do you know what I mean? Signs of one. 10 years! Now, obviously, he got his head together, but he, he certainly, someone like Paul, is not going to spend 10 years getting his head together. You know, oh, I need to go and get my head together. You know, how long do you think it's going to take Paul to get his head together? Not that long, is it? <laughs> do you know what I mean? So what's he doing in those 10 years? We don't have a clue, but he's doing something because at the end of the 10 years, Barnabas, who's in Antioch, that's having a revival... It's like saying, flipping Nora, we need some help here. You know, we need someone in to come. Sorry about the English colloquialism, flipping Nora. It's just a saying. Uh, and, you know, he's saying, look, 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 you know, we, we need some help here. We've got a revival in Antioch. Who, who can we have? Paul, come over and help. Well, that means in those 10 years, Paul had obviously become a very, very proficient theologian, teacher, voice for the church, force to be reckoned with. So whatever else has happened in Arabia, he's probably been planting churches. And there's this guy, Eckhard Schnabel, who's done a lot of work. He's, he's gone through all of the villages in what would have been Arabia, um, looking at all the archaeological develop, uh, uh, evidence that's ever been unfolded and all the records of any form of church, Christian you know, afters, and he's documented them all. And then he's come out with this speculation of, well, this was probably... Paul but you know we can't prove it but you know so there's evidence that Paul was very active but again we don't know so, so what does that tell us about Acts it tell us that, that tell us that, that, that not just Luke is intentional Luke's intentional about what he's putting in he's also intentional about what he's leaving out but it's more about what he's putting in he's wanting the book of Acts is a history and it's not a bad history. You know, Luke has got a lot of slagging, um, you know, by critics. But if you look at it, it's, it's pretty good history. It's pretty well recorded. It's pretty well put together. And he was an eyewitness too. You know, he was with Paul, so it's eyewitness history. Um, we'll go into that a bit later. So, so there we go. So we've got Jesus crucified, Paul saved, Arabia, 
good as those. You could write a great book on it, couldn't you? Make it all up, couldn't you? It'd be great fun. Uh, and then you've got 42 to 62, you've got Paul's ministry in Acts. And then 62 or 66, uh, Paul, James, and Peter are martyred. Uh, James Dunn believes that in the persecutions in 62, uh, that, um, uh, that Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. And in the same year, James was thrown off the temple and, and, and murdered. So he believes that in the same year, the early church lost all three of its key leaders. Uh, but then after that, the growth of the church was unbelievable. So it shows a, a phenomenal investment in the next generation. Now, some would say, well, yeah, we, we think that, 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 that um, Peter and James went 62. But we think that when, you, where's that? I can't remember where it is, where, you know, Paul's in prison and he's saying, bring me my cloak and bring me my this and bring me my that. And some say, oh, that's because he's a poor old man and he feels he's about to die. Um, Schnabel would say, no, he thinks he's going to get released. He's getting ready for another journey. So Schnabel speculates that, that Paul got to Spain, but then was rearrested, brought back to Rome, and, and killed in 66. I mean, who knows? I'd like to think he got to Spain, but, but, the, the, but it makes it interesting with Acts makes it interesting with Acts because if he died in 62 he might have been dead before the book of Acts was finished if he died in 66 he was likely still alive so what does that tell well okay yeah yeah, what does that tell us about the book of Acts it's interesting. It doesn't really matter whether Paul was still alive or dead. But then a lot, a lot of people that commentate the book of Acts are saying, the book of Acts is more than, it's not like the history of the life of Paul and his wonderful death that he's all over and done with. So, so basically Luke, Luke, Luke is, you've got to see Luke Acts. Most people would say, well, okay, the, the order of the Bible is important. So like the order of the Old Testament is, is quite important. Where a book is put in the order affects the way the story unfolds. So the book of Genesis is put first. It's exceptionally unlikely that the book of Genesis was the first one that's written. Possibly it was Job. Genesis was probably right in the middle. Um, and, you know, the, the Chronicles, the Jewish Bible, puts Chronicles at the end. And, you know, but it's interesting that that, that Chronicles is, Chronicles is also saying something really unusual. The the description of the temple in Chronicles is unbuildable. All all, All the measurements are totally out of whack. Why is that? It's a cartoon. It's got a big doze. You know, this thing is, this part of the temple is big. He's saying something about the, it's, 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 it's a metaphorical. It's, it's just the way the Old Testament is. It's, it's making a point more than, oh, let's look at Chronicles and try and rebuild Chronicles in accordance with the biblical pattern. Well, the, 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 the writer is not giving us a, you know, it's just not an architect's document. It's someone saying something through the figures, through the numbers. That's what's going on. So the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, finishes with Chronicles. Ours is 
finishes with you know the other prophets. So they're they're saying something about the temple. The Christian version of it is saying something about the end of the prophetic era and the prophetic silence. And yeah, so where you order the books is kind of quite important. And so I can understand why they've got you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know, and they've, so they've separated Luke from Acts. But in reality, you have to see Luke Acts as one book. It's kind of like part one, part two. You know, Luke's got some. You know, some good theology in it. Acts has got a little bit, but not so much. But really, so there's this guy, Luke Timothy. This is like standard stuff, right? This is not, there's nothing unusual about this. You know, most people would say, yeah, it's Luke Acts. And, and so this guy, Luke Timothy Johnson, says, well, what, what Luke's saying is, so, so Luke begins with this, you know, this event, this coming of the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon Jesus you know, Jesus goes into the wilderness, he gets persecuted, he comes back in the power of the Spirit, then you have this victorious you know, ministry, then you have the passion and crucifixion on into the future. So, so Jesus presented as this Holy Spirit, anointed, prophetic, messianic figure, and, and then the book of Luke goes through this thing, you know? And then the book of Acts is the same. So it's prophetic Jesus, prophetic church. Starts with the Pentecost, coming of the Spirit, persecution, going out, growth of the church. Finishes with Paul victoriously still preaching the gospel going on and on and on. So, so what is Luke saying? Luke's saying to the persecuted, struggled church, as it was with Jesus, so it will be with the church. You know, do not fear, just as the Messiah was anointed prophetically and called and did all these great deeds, so it was with, from the beginning, you remember he's writing maybe in the 60s, this is the way we started, boys. We start, we, Jesus did this, and we started just like Jesus, anointed with the Spirit, doing the stuff, doing that. We need to continue with that. Don't fear that we're under persecution. We need to continue with that. And more than that, Luke is kind of writing it for all time. So, so whether Paul's dead or alive, he may even be dead. You know, but what, what Luke is doing is he's finishing the book, not with the death of Paul, but he's almost saying, look, he's fearlessly preaching the gospel. And he, so what his message is, guys, forever, that's what we as the church will be doing. So the book of Acts is this wonderful book that's built on the foundation of the Jesus tradition and the Gospels, and Luke is making that incredible point. So yes, it is a, it's a history of the ministry of Paul. Um, you know, Luke selected Paul. Good choice. <laughs> you know, because actually, you know, his, his stuff has probably, I mean, he wrote, obviously, Paul wrote an awful lot of the New Testament, obviously the Holy Spirit, but, you know, Paul was responsible for penning most of the New Testament. And, and actually, it's, it's the churches that he founded that, that multiplied, that, that, that really zoomed on. Uh, you know, the Jewish thread uh, continued in Jerusalem. Interesting aside on Jerusalem, we'll talk a bit more about it. Probably was there till AD 180. Interestingly, you know, in the New Testament, church leadership was usually on the basis of anointing. 
people, leaders that were called and trained and developed. It wasn't based on gender at all. There were lots of women leaders, but most of the churches were based like that. Jerusalem seemed to be different in that it was led by a relative of Jesus, you know, until uh, AD 180 when it was um, destroyed by the Romans. So obviously it started with Peter, not relative of Jesus, James, half-brother of Jesus. After that, this guy, Clopas or something or other, who was um, cousin, half-cousin of whatever of Jesus' Jesus family. So, so you have this, this inheritance, which is even more remar- it's really remarkable, isn't it, that you've got Jesus' half-brothers and family and whatever, you know, all getting martyred for the faith, believing that their sort of half-brother, Jesus, was the Messiah and was God. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> it takes a bit of a step to believe that view of half-brother so to speak so that but so you've got interesting church models you know <laughs> leadership in the family that's caused a problem in churches throughout but you, do you know what i mean it, but it's there it's there in the jerusalem church uh, and so the, the so this fully jewish church which in a sense is the bedrock of christianity was there until about 8180 when it was destroyed completely and you know as uh, with it that kind of that vein of the Jewish thread that's really important to us was kind of lost. Um, so, yeah, interesting. A lot of fun, eh? So let's get some um, old prophetic Jesus to prophetic church. We've done all that, haven't we? And, and, and you kind of um, see that pattern um, within, within the book of Acts. So... If you Acts 2, 4, 29, 6, 7, 8, 14, 10, 44, or, or if you look these up, what you would find is this sense of the Spirit comes, something crazy happens, you know, um, you know the Spirit comes and there's healings, or the Spirit comes or, you know, the, the, the prison doors are thrown open. You know, the Spirit comes and what? Gentiles <laughs> start speaking in tongues. Crazy. That's changed things a bit. This, this, you know, the turning point, <laughs> really, even for Peter. Crikey. Yeah, and it shows how led by the Spirit that they were, that even those who were Jews, for whom the whole concept of a Gentile coming to faith was at a complete abomination, it's kind of like, mm, okay, the Spirit's upon them. We better accept it then, which they kind of mostly did, um, kind of. But, 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 you know, so you see how Holy Spirit led the church was. But, but it's almost like what um, Luke is saying is, look, look, the Spirit comes, zap, something dynamic occurs, and then you always get, and the word is proclaimed, or the word increased, or the word multiplied, or they spoke the word boldly or the word of God progressed so you've kind of got this thing of spirit coming and words being proclaimed which is kind of like Jesus as well isn't it you know miracles and teaching going together and that kind of that's a pattern for us to to note that that and when you when you so when Luke chronicles the growth of the church that there is this dynamic of with movements and with churches, that the Holy Spirit comes, there's powerful stuff that comes, and then the Word of God kind of gets out, and then you get growth. And so, quite simply, that is an encouragement as a church for us to cultivate the presence and the power of God, but at the same time, 
to get the word out there. The actual word out there. You know, Paul says, I resolved to know nothing more than Christ crucified. That's all I know. It's not all he knew. He was actually, you know, an expert in Greek philosophy and thinking, clearly understood rabbinics. He's an absolute genius. But to his mind, you know, the, the, the word of Jesus is the most important thing. So that's kind of a nice sort of question to us. Um, so, right, let's step into the New Testament, the Jerusalem church and the New Testament church for just a little bit. And then we can have some questions. And are we, are we doing all right? Are we hanging on in there? Yeah, okay. So the Jerusalem church is quite interesting. You know, well, it's more than quite interesting. Um, you know, you got the, so you've got the Spirit of God, you know, at Pentecost. You then get Peter stands up. And that's part of why Peter is so influential. You know, it's interesting, someone said to me, they went to um, Rome or whatever, and it's all Peter, 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 Peter. Paul is never mentioned. It's just not even there, which is unbelievable. Uh, but then sometimes within more Protestant settings, it's the other way around. You don't really understand. But Peter was the first one who stood up at Pentecost. So kind of in the New Testament church, he had that statesman role. So it's really interesting that when you have some of the conflicts emerge between, between Jerusalem and Paul, <laughs> mainly, um, that, that Peter is caught in the middle. So you've got, you know, if you've got Galatians 2 and Acts 15. So Acts 15 is Luke's account. You know, so basically what happens, the move of the Spirit is going, it's really radical, Spirit comes upon the Gentiles through Paul, there's a real dust up, but it's okay, Paul goes up to Jerusalem, talks with the thing, James stands up as the leader, and they come to this decision uh, that, that um, you know, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, uh, they just need to not have meat sacrificed to idols, you know, submitting to the pagan cult. And it's absolutely fine, you know, baptism rather than circumcision. So, so Luke's agenda in writing Acts is to say, it's okay, we worked it out in the end. Now, Paul, on the other hand, if you read Galatians 2, <laughs> uh, kind of agrees with the conclusion, but it's a, you see that there's a lot more conflict behind the scenes than, than, than you, you know, that, that, that people had come up from James that were causing problems. You know, just like Paul had you know, been an assassin before salvation, there were clearly Jews outside of the church that were probably looking to, he was probably getting pursued by potential assassins, they weren't coming out from the church, but they were coming out from hardline Jews. So, you know, and Paul is pretty, pretty, you know, he's pretty clear, isn't he? You know, he's sort of like, you know, hang on a minute. One minute we're eating with the Gentiles and then people from James turn up and, and Peter's not eating with the Gentiles. And some would say, well, that's Paul, the high and mighty one, you know, pointing out hypocrisy in Peter and sorting him out. Others would say, you know what? Peter, as the, as the original father figure, if you like, was in a difficult situation. You know, he's got Paul on one side and he's got James on the other. He's got Jerusalem on one side and he's got now Antioch here. What is he going to do? So some would say, let's not be... 
Peter probably did make a decision which may have been a wrong decision, you know, in the way that he drew to one side. But what he's trying to do is to keep the church moving forward in unity. And although Paul was very hard on him, it is Peter that later on who's saying, you know, Paul's writings are scripture, they're inspired, they're whatever. So you see why, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, Peter is such a figure, because he is that, that, that person who's holding it together. And so what you really see is the New Testament Church is built on James, Peter, you don't, we don't hear much about James, do we? And, and Paul, really. The three of those leaders who worked it out together. And Paul had, Paul had on his right wing, he's got these extreme Greek, you know, he's got the Corinth situation. You know, Greek, male, converts, weird ideas about tongues, weird ideas about women, immorality, you know, in the context of the, the meal, because it's the Greek. So, so Paul's trying to deal with that on one side. And then James has got these Judaizers on the other side who basically have kind of come to Christ, but who want di- to, you don't believe Gentiles can get saved without, you know, and they want to deal with Paul. They want, you know. So you've got that off one side of James, that on the other side of Paul. And then you've got these three guys in the middle who basically together laid the foundation upon which the whole of the New Testament church grew and flourished. Does that make sense? Well, I I think he was, you know, a father figure, a unifying figure, bringing unity, you know. Yeah, it is a different picture, but then you see the emerging, you see you see the growth. And a lot of people looking at Paul would say you if Paul if Paul wrote Ephesians, which he I think he probably did. Um there's a there's a if he didn't, it was one of his disciples, so it's Pauline. In in those days, but it's Paul didn't write the New Testament says that Paul didn't write all of the books by himself you know Timothy was involved others were involved in the penning of the books so so there were others involved and it's not unusual in New Testament times for a manuesis you know not just a scribe but for for someone to write a book in the name of their mentor and to publish it in that name is not unusual you know, so people would say, well, uh, if Paul didn't write Ephesians because it's later, it doesn't really matter because it's Pauline. It is Paul. I think he did write it. I think, yeah, you, you, you know, and, and, but um, but you see a difference between now the the, the pastors. You see a difference between one Corinthians, you know, the, the church structure in one Corinthians. You know, first apostles, second prophets, wasn't it? Third miracle workers. <laughs> <laughs> and some administrators in there. So that's the, the, the model of leadership in Corinthians was, uh, you know, apostles, prophets, miracle workers or whatever it is, you know, with some ad- helps, administrators. That was Paul's model of church in Corinth. Well, by the time you get to Ephesians, he, he appears to have refined it somewhat. <laughs> Where you've got, you know, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, you developmental. And then on into the pastorals, you've got, well, we're appointing elders in every church now. You know, which kind of we had in Jerusalem, but there's n- it's not the same. So you've got Peter's developing, Paul is developing, Paul's cl- thinking. Maybe, maybe Paul was thinking, we don't know. Mm. 
1 Corinthians was good. There was obviously at least three Corinthian letters, maybe more, because in 1 and 2 Corinthians they refer to it in my other book, which we don't have. So there's at least, that's one of the problems with 1 Corinthians is that we don't know what was in the other book. We have to sort of kind of invent some ideas. But um, so clearly there's something going on in Paul, which you would, wouldn't you? You know, you plant a church in, you know, you part Revelation Church in 1983 like I did, and then things happen. There's things I did in those first 12 years I wouldn't do now. I mean, if I hadn't learned something from then till now, you know, if my ecclesiology hadn't developed over that period, and that's what you see in the New Testament. You do see that there is a development. It's not that each, each teaching on ecclesiology has value to us now, but, but you have to recognize also the, the trend that's, that's going and, and so see what it's got to say to us now in that context. Yeah. And yeah. And you might say, if you've got a brand new church that's exploding, that's full of the Holy Spirit, you might say, right, first apostles, second prophets, third miracle workers. That's your structure. In 15 years' time, you might say, do you know what? You need some elders, <laughs> or you know, or in five years' time, you might say, do you know what I mean? Because it's it's. What's happening at different seasons? So the, the different stages of the journey that the New Testament records are useful to us, I think, in different stages of, of our life as a church, which is interesting. Um, and so, so you've got this dynamic behind Acts. And it's interesting that, that, that Luke, who obviously thinks Paul is incredible because he's ignored all the others. I mean, he mentions Peter a bit. He, he does all the way through Acts. It's interesting that everything that Paul does miraculously, um, he makes sure that he says that Peter does it as well. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's, yeah, he's not wanting to upset the Jews too much, is our Luke. But he's also, he's wanting to stand on behalf of Paul, who was having a pretty rough time at this moment in, in, in time. So you've got that going on. And, and he never calls Paul an apostle which is quite remarkable because Paul calls himself an apostle all the time, but he obviously was an apostle, but Luke's careful not to press that bomb. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> he's not going to press that button. He's far too clever for that. So, so he's, he's writing this history, uh, uh, and there's, there, there is some in, in, intent behind it, and he's showing the way the New Testament church unfolds. And you've got some interesting stuff within it. You have this kind of coming of the Spirit, and, and this growth, and, and you have actually the seeds of the kind of aggravation, because Antioch was planted when there was persecution in Jerusalem. So, so Antioch feels like it belongs to Jerusalem. So when the conflict happens in Antioch, you know, you can see why Paul, after, after the Acts 15 thing, which according to, um, according to Luke was resolved well, you, you don't hear of Paul in Antioch again. It's not that he doesn't go there, but, it, but what you, he, you, he's, then in, in, he's, he's then in Corinth and he's in Ephesus. So his ministry then is, gets based out of those places because those places are more gospel to the Gentiles, which is where 
Or even though when always when Paul starts, he always goes to the Jews first. He always goes to the synagogue first. So that's it's not that Paul was, you know, some people put him as against the Jews. You know, he always goes there first because that's where his heart is. But he goes there first, then he ends up going to the Gentiles. And so you see Paul operating out of Ephesus, a little bit of Corinth, which was a bit of a mess, but hey, big church. Uh, and, 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 but mainly out of Ephesus and beyond. And, and then you see you know, the Jerusalem kind of thing there. But you see that the embryonic nature of that in, in Acts chapter 6, um, where you have... Because you've got Paul, haven't you, at that time, who's, he's, he's persecuting the, the Jews in the Jerusalem church, isn't he, around that sort of time. And, and in Acts chapter 6, you have this interesting story of, you know, the spirits come, the church is growing, the widows aren't getting fed, so we need to appoint deacons. Okay, let's appoint Philip, Stephen, all that lot. Now, all we know, they didn't seem to do a lot of serving, did they? Though, so you know, what they, obviously, they, but all they seem to do is translocate, you know, have daughters that were prophets, do sides of one to see people saved and get martyred. And and, you know, and, and James Dunn says, well, really, what you've got there is um, within the Jerusalem church. It's almost like you've got congregations. You you, you have got you you've got. Believers in Jesus who only speak Jewish. And then you've got the Greek Jews, Philip, Stephen, all of that. And what, what, what you've got happening is the Holy Spirit's coming upon the church, but then the, the Greek Jews that are a bit more cosmopolitan, they're a bit more educated, a bit more, a bit less in the, you know, they've grown up in, in, in the Gentile cities, not just out of the whole Jewish framework, and this is where all the disturbance is happening, but it's also where the Spirit of God is moving. And these were the people that Paul was against, martyred. So it's these Greek-speaking Jews. So obviously Paul's conversion is impacted by his martyrdom of Stephen. Was, and, and, but it's these Greek-thinking Jews that were more um, critical of the temple. They were already beginning to say, well, maybe it's just faith in Jesus. And, and so you, you, in the Jerusalem church, you had a slight, already a slight divergence between the, the Jewish speaking and the Gentile speaking. You know, Paul comes in, the spirit's moving on that side of the church, or Saul as he was then. Stephen gets martyred. And, and so there's a movement of the spirit there. They say we need deacons. But really, what, what these deacons were, they were kind of apostolic leaders. But at that stage, you couldn't call them apostles because they didn't have the thinking to add any more apostles at that stage. It wasn't to, so they called them deacons, but really they weren't deacons in the sense of your Baptist deacon, you know, put, putting out the hymn books or doing the practical stuff. They, they were like almost the leaders of that congregation within the Jerusalem church. And what historical records show that when the persecution came and the dispersal, which planted Antioch and beyond, that it, that it was the Greek-speaking lot that got persecuted and thrown out first. And the rest of the apostles, like Peter and others that were primarily Hebrew-speaking, they, they stayed there for a while, and that church continued to grow 
on that basis. And so after the dispersal, Jerusalem became much more, you know, mono-Hebrew thinkers than rather having lots of, you know, Greek-speaking Jews. So that's the kind of dynamic inside the New Testament church. But obviously you've got this phenomenal model of spirit coming, house to house, temple courts, large gatherings, small gatherings, persecution, out they go. And obviously they had pretty effective disciple frameworks because wherever they went once they were dispersed, there's again quite a lot of historical evidence of of quite a lot of churches being planted out of the dispersal. Um, And of course Antioch was one of those which became the first key base for the gospel to go from beyond there. So, any questions or reflections? <coughs> Trying to help you get some understanding a little bit, as much as we can, as to kind of what was going on. That's right. And it's an eyewitness account. And, then, and, and, and you basically, the church looked at these documents for like, you know, after the early church was saying, yeah, as far as we're concerned, this is the canon. For about the next 300 years, you know, every leader that you could think of, they all looked at the, well, they were thinking, well, which is in, which is out. And they came to the same conclusion. So it's almost, it's gone through that rigor of, of, of you know, of painstaking, you, you know, and said, yeah, th- these are the ones that we believe are authoritative, that are revelation, that are canon. And, and I think that is also, you know, really, really important. Um, I mean, it's great. And, it's, 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 it, and it does, yeah, exactly, set it apart. Any other reflections? Well, there's uh, this guy called Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S, who's probably... So there's quite, there are other eyewitness accounts around. So you've got Josephus, who's a Jewish theologian, who's, you know, he's a little bit blowing his own trumpet, but he, he records an awful lot of what's happening in and around the death, resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament church, quite a lot of references. Uh, and then you've got this guy, Papias, who clearly uh, met John... Uh, and met other disciples uh, and met 
you know, disciples of the disciples, you know, witnesses of the witnesses. And so he, he records uh, an awful lot. Uh, and then you have got, you, you have got the apocryphal, some of the apocryphal books that are a bit later that are also referring to other documents. And then there's uh, stacks of archaeological, you know, stuff through, you know, in, in places like Corinth and, and Rome and, you know, etc., that, okay, there were churches here, there were, and then, you know, m millions and millions of, you know, well, not millions, thousands, hundreds of thousands, fragments, New Testament fragments, you know, m more fragments of, you know, New Testament books than any other, you know, book of antiquity that, that have been found, so many more, you know, in wallpaper, in the floor, ever, they were everywhere, you know, it's, uh, so, so you've kind of got, you know, it is quite bizarre that, you know, we've got, you know, Loads, loads, and loads, and loads, and loads more evidence, you know, in terms of consistency of the New Testament than you've got than virtually any other book of antiquity. You know, a lot of whom you're just depending on one or two fragments, whereas we've got quite a lot of excerpts and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's good fun. Yeah. And a lot of the New Testament is sorting that out, isn't it? So, so like the Spirit comes, and then all this amazing work of God in Corinth, um, but obviously some really big problems. And so then Paul's having to write to address them. And part of our difficulty is we, we've got to find out what the problem is before we can then identify the principle and then apply it today. And it's, it's not always that clear what the problems were. You know, some of them are clear, some of them are, are not clear. But it is that thing. But it's a bit like what it's like with church today, isn't it? You know, the spirit comes, God does things. People can say people come to Christ. And then, th then you have to sit there and say, okay, well, this is that. You know, this is what happens when the Spirit comes. But now, how do we work that out, you know, in our culture? Because we're experiencing things that, that you know, could not have ever been in the mind of Paul. But then also we experience a lot of things that, that, that were, you know. You know, in Corinth, they had eunuchs, they had people saved, they had prostitutes, they had all moral chaos, you know, whatever. You, know, you name it, they had all of that. It's different issues, but it's kind of similar to the kind of things that we've got. So there are lots of principles there, but it is the same. It's like spirit, all this stuff happens, we go with it. Then we've got to say, okay, what does that look like? But I think what's also exciting is that, that sense of writing the story. And, you know, we've got this here as an authoritative guide. And, you know, as the eyewitnesses died out, so the canon is finished. So that's why you know that's why we're not still writing scripture because it's that eyewitness 
thing that's vital. But it's kind of like you see their story within their writings, and it's kind of like the gospel is a story. It, it's it's not just it's not sort of a, a redacted or reduced truth or concept. It's not an abstract thing that we then work out. It, it kind of is that in some ways, but it's more a kind of story that when we receive Jesus and we receive the Spirit, it, it kind of starts to outwork in our lives, and then we, we plant churches and plant communities that are also outworking that story in the same way. Um, and, you know, and, in, and in that story, you know, people live, people become the foundations, they hang it on to others, people go to be with the Lord, you know, which is the experience that we get, but they, they leave their inheritance, you know, it's like, and, and nobody's quite, you know, nobody's quite sure, but, but everybody knows that Paul must have done something amazing because, you know, and the others must have done something amazing because in the second century, the church grew amazingly more than it did in the first century. Incredible acceleration. Uh, under quite extreme persecution. So there were some incredible foundations, you know, laid. So, you know, you know Paul is dead, long live Paul, in, in his disciples, in, in that kind of framework. And that's kind of like a story, isn't it? It's our story, it's the story of the church in this country, it's, a, you know, the story of our last 30 years, 50 years, or however many years we've had, some a lot less than others, you know, and so it will continue until the Lord returns. Which is kind of like exciting, isn't it? Well, incredibly, um, but you, and, and there's an upside and a downside. I mean, you have to say that Paul's model of mission in Corinth was incredibly affected by the Corinthian culture. I mean, for sure, there the church met in, uh, you know, met in, in Gaius's house, met, met in the house of you know rich people that had. So you had the whole church meeting in the house there. For sure, they gathered around the meal. Uh, and the whole one Corinthians framework, the meal was built around Corinthian societies. So they would have had philosophical societies, you know, pagan societies. They had trade union type societies. They had slave type societies. That and you had and and you, you had the synagogue. Well, you have to see that in some context the church was built on the synagogue, but the other context being built around the meal. All the societies were built around the meal. And so when the New Testament church in Corinth met, they met around the meal. Well, then they had the... So really reached out into the Greek culture amazingly, saw lots of people come to faith or whatever. But then some of the things that were prevalent in some of those societies came into the that meal environment. So rich people sitting in one place, others in others, some bringing their own food, not sharing it around, sexual immorality, all of that that were in those other societies came into the church. So step one, great, culturally relevant, 
moved in, saw people saved. Step two, oh dear, we've got a few things we need to sort out here. And I, I think because the church, there is no such thing as a neutral culture. You know, we're always incarnational. Um, so there's no such thing as a Christian culture. doesn't exist. You know, there, there's, there's just culture. And we're incarnating Jesus prophetically, uh, you, you know, within that. You know, it's a bit like we say, isn't it great to influence you know, the, the music scene? And then, you know, we get in there, we have, you know, worship and big worship, whatever. But then we realize that actually the more famous you get, that causes a really, really big problem. How do you handle that individually? And then people get too famous and then they hit the deck. And you think, ooh, but it's the same. So I think that you see, you know, Rome again is different. So you've got different models in the New Testament. You've got Corinth that you've got everything from the lecture hall of Tyrannus, you know, Paul debating day by day, several hundred people, through to the church in, in, in the household of the rich person, through to church around the meals, uh, to Rome, which people have said is like the apartment church. Lots of small house churches in these tenements, you know, millions, you know, loads of them, possibly with some workstations on the ground floor. We don't know. There's some good archaeological work being done that they think they might have knocked a couple of them together and, you know, had a slightly larger meeting. But basically, lots of small apartment churches in Rome that nobody knows who started Rome. You know, the, the only apostle mentioned in Rome is Junius, the, the woman there. So she, couldn't, she might have well, her and her husband might have well have started that church, but nobody really knows. It was already rocking and rolling by the time, um, you know, Paul turns up, you know. So, uh, so, so you've got different examples, but you're absolutely right. And, and the good side of communicating in the culture then has its, you know, the spirit breaks out, people get saved, then we've got to think, hang on a minute, how do we, criti- how do we bring the, the correct values in, into this context? And, and the challenge in the Jewish culture, Jerusalem culture, was one thing, but the challenge in the Greek culture um, was something completely different. But the church, one of the differences, I think, between you know, Christianity and Islam is that, say, is that Islam, in reality, requires the imposition of Sharia law, of that culture, really, to be fully authentic. It, it, it's, a, it's a cultural system... But the church is completely different to that. Uh, it doesn't require the imposition of a culture. Uh, the church operates much more. Christianity operates. You know, you could be fully Chinese and fully Christian. You could be. You, you can actually be Muslim culturally and Christian. And, you know, that's why and this is the big missionary disagreement. You know, we need to, people need to re- renounce Islam and become Christian. But then people are saying. You, you, my, my Muslim identity is not, it's not, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, but I can't renounce my Muslim identity because my Muslim identity is my family, my culture, and my everything. And so a lot of people would say, well, you know, just like you become a Messianic Jew, you follow Jesus, you become a believer in Jesus, you know, which then doesn't involve you converting from, because once you mention coming to Christian, then you've got the... You, you get all the problems with the Crusades. Yeah, and, and so some go clearly, some go... But, but missionally, that is, you, you know... The, the, it was really... The, it was outsiders that called Christians Christians first before that was follower of Jesus. I'm not saying we shouldn't call ourselves Christians, but I'm just saying we've got to understand there, there's culture that, that we have to critique. But 
you know, sometimes we, we know that. We Christianize certain things that aren't, that are really just cultural things. There are preferences. You know, our, our, uh, an example of our, you know, Western idea of marriage, you know, 2.2 kids, nuclear family. This is the biblical thing that we need to defend. Mm, yeah, uh, okay, in the New Testament, I don't think that was, you know, it was the household. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It was, it was much more of an extended family. And, and in those days when, you know, often men died in war, there were loads of widows, you know, you know, people sometimes assume that the, the woman at the well that had five husbands, that, oh, she must have been, well, you know, in that culture, you weren't divorcing one as a woman and going to another one. You didn't have that much power. Probably she'd been widowed two or three times by people, that, husbands that had died in war or died from sickness or, you know, there might have been a bit of immorality as well, but that's the culture. So in that setting, the extended family is absolutely vital. And the church becoming an extended family that cares for widows and e economy. So, so that's a kind of very long-winded way of saying we, we look at things culturally that probably can be quite different. And that is the massive missionary challenge, isn't it? It's a cultural challenge. And it, yeah, and I think they did have that in the New Testament. And I think probably, if you, if you look at it, it seems to me that what Paul said is, look, you know, if you're, whatever state you are when you get saved, don't change. It, unless your partner throws you out or doesn't want to know you. So whatever state you're in, don't change, stay where you are. But, but as for leadership, our ideal pattern is one man, one woman, and not polygamy. So, the, so, so if you're in this mess now, stay in it. <laughs> but looking to the future, this is the ideal pattern that we've got. Because they wanted to avoid the whole thing of, you know, sending people away and all the economic disaster. And, you know, because there are some things that when we come to Christ, you know, everything's forgiven and cleansed and we can be healed and restored and whatever. But there are some situations that, that kind of don't, automatically sort themselves out and so so we have to find grace to, to, to work those through and work that, see the redemption slowly unfold in them uh, you, you can't just cut yourself off from them but you need to allow the gospel to sort your mindset out with them but I think that is a great challenge but there's all sorts of other challenges aren't there of the other thing I wanted to mention is your previous speech when you talk 
some of the applicants just look at applicants decide to do that with the advice of clients one person yeah. holding the power yeah And maybe then second generation Africans, you know, in, in maybe, you know, you've then got, and that works for this generation, but maybe the second generation and the third generation that have grown up a bit more in a Western mindset, maybe they'd want a bit more team, a bit more of a different, they still got that African kind of dimension to them. But, and so how do you transition from this generation to that generation and, and let the next lot develop a shape of church that's a, a bit different in, in that sense, but, eat, you know, but has its strengths and weakness, weaknesses, but it's still biblical, but it's, it's the reflection of the culture, isn't it? And I think, and, and that is, you know, they, it seems to be, people I've talked to that, you know, we've got you know, masses to earn, l l learn from the sort of passion, the dimension, the dynamic of the African churches and what they bring. But then the second generation, third generation is something that they're even thinking, how do we, how do we bring the second generation lot through who are, they're, they're different to us because they are, you know, they are, well, they're fully, they're kind of Western, but not Western, <laughs> which is wonderful, but challenging. Um, any other re reflections? And, I, I, and so I would just encourage you to, you know, look at the book of Acts and see, um, you know, as you read the stories of Acts, you know, perhaps read Luke and then read Acts. And, and, and as you see these stories and, and to see, you know, Luke looking on it, he's got an agenda, he's got all sorts of agendas, we can understand what they are, but he's, he, but he's you know, recording a story for all time. You know, for the he's thinking about it. He's thinking, you know, what do I want to leave for people that are going to read about the church in the future? That, so there's something in Acts about the dynamic that is very much intended for us to, today and to be typical of us and to kind of read your own story as proximity into to Acts and to kind of pray and say, God, come and overlay this story on our lives in terms of the the moving of the spirit and salvation and gentiles getting saved you know or, you know okay this is a problem you know <laughs> it's a blessing but it's, it's a challenge and and to you know enjoy that you know the gay couple that get saved join the church and have got two adopted kids Ta -da! you know it's, Wonderful. What are we going to do? Something like Acts, I think. <laughs> whatever that is. And whatever you do, do you know what? There will be some controversy on one side or the other. But you've got to go with the flow of the gospel. Uh, and so, so to me, it's, it's kind of... So, so let's begin to read the Acts story, read ourselves into it, uh, read that story into our, our own lives and begin, begin the journey and, and, and see ourselves, you know, that bit at the end where... You know, Paul is left, he's not in prison, he's free, 
He's preaching the gospel. This, this, is, this is the model for us now. And let's use the freedom that, that, that we've got in many, many contexts to, to share the faith and see the spirit break out. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lunch next. Some notes here that I've emailed over so you, you can um, rob us of.